Please bow your heads with me once more as we go to the Lord to ask his blessing on the preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Father, we confess we are ignorant and weak. We are stubborn and self-willed. You say many things in your word that are not welcome to our flesh, that make us bristle, that make us fear. So Lord, we pray, would you soften our hearts to your word now? And you tell your servant that you are watching over your word to perform it. So would you perform your word now in the hearts of your people? And pour out your spirit to bless your word, to sanctify our souls, to save us, to instruct and teach, to correct and rebuke and train and equip in righteousness and holiness. Do these things not because of any righteous works that we have done, but because of your mercy to us in Christ, for his sake. Amen. You talk to any coach, whether it's a sports coach or a life coach, and they will tell you that one of the most important skills to develop is in how you respond to, diver- to adversity. Whether you had a bad game, or maybe you got fired from your first job, or you lost an important relationship, the question is, what are you going to do about that? How are you going to respond to that adversity? This morning we're going to see how Christians responded to severe adversity from Acts 8, verses 1 to 8. If you'll turn there with me in your Bibles, Acts 8, 1 through 8. This wasn't just losing a game or even losing a job. This was forced displacement. They got kicked out of their homes and out of their city into foreign cultures and contexts where they were minorities. So let's see how real Christians respond to severe adversity. Follow along in your own Bibles as I read out loud for us Acts 8, verses 1 through 8. Saul approved of Stephen's execution. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what, Philip, what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out from many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So in verse 1, a great persecution, a mega persecution, came onto the church in Jerusalem after the martyrdom of Stephen. And all the Christians 
were scattered across the regions of Judea and Samaria. The dictionary def definition of a persecution is a program or process designed to harass and oppress someone. It may not be systemic in our sense of the word systemic injustice, but it is systematic in the sense that it's authorized by those in power, it's coordinated, it's orchestrated, it's targeted, it's methodical, and it is big. It's widespread. It is a mega persecution. This is not just taking away your tax exemption as a church. It's kicking you out of your house, maybe confiscating your property, probably firing you from your job, and definitely kicking you out of town. It's public. All of a sudden, you're a refugee. You're a fugitive. Your church is broken up. Your whole life is upended. You don't live in Elgin anymore. You don't go to this church anymore. This church doesn't exist anymore. Now what? The apostles, though, stay in Jerusalem, maybe because they still had more clout with the crowds than Stephen, who was relatively unknown outside the church. Whatever the case, devout men in Jerusalem stay to bury Stephen, and they hold what appears to be a public funeral for him, a big public ceremony mourning his death, like the mega-persecution. This is a mega-lamentation. Maybe not just for Stephen, but maybe also in response to the mega-persecution. This would have been risky. Publicly mourning a guy who just got stoned in Jerusalem for blasphemy against God and Moses and the temple and the law. And now you're, by your tears, you're saying, we were on his side. You shouldn't have done that. We wish you had not done that. But Saul has no sympathy for any of these people. In fact, he wreaks even more havoc on them. He may not be going house to house or to the house of every single Christian. He might be doing that. But he may well be starting with the bigger houses where they met during the week when they were not all together, the whole 5,000 of them in Solomon's portico. In 542, when Peter and John go away from being beaten after their deposition, Luke says that both in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So here... Saul is probably tracking down all those houses where Peter and John had preached to smaller gatherings. It is most likely strategic and tactical. And now, at least for the host families, it has become invasive. Breaking and entering. He's got your address. He's breaking down your front door. And brother, he's not just coming for you, he's coming for your wife too. 
He's hauling you both off, men and women, to prison. So husband, just think about that. What would your response be if you have just seen your wife hauled off to prison because you two were hosting a Bible study and Saul knew it? Now, Saul is scattering these Christians in order to smother their movement. He doesn't like Christianity, not yet. But in verse 4, what happens instead is that the scattered Christians scatter the word of the gospel wherever they go. That word for preaching in verse 4 is literally evangelizing. They are literally evangelizing the evangel. They're spreading the good news of God's word or message about Jesus as the Christ. The prophet who speaks the word of God and is the word of God. The priest who sacrifices his own blood for our sins. The king who rules us better than we rule ourselves. Now think back to the meeting of the Sanhedrin in chapter 5 verse 37 when Gamaliel reminded them of the movement started by Thutis and Judas. When those revolutionaries were killed, they said, look, their followers scattered and the movements petered out. So on that logic, the Sanhedrin, the ruling religious council, may be thinking here in chapter 8, why don't we give that process a little nudge? Why don't we scatter them ourselves to accelerate the disillusion of this whole Christianity thing? Let's just scatter them and see it's probably just going to dissolve, right? I mean, if they're not together, if they can't meet, if we give them a hard time, if we put them in prison, if we deport them, if we kick them out of town, surely it's going to end up just like Thutis and Judas. Ain't nobody going to be preaching Jesus anymore. Not after what we're getting ready to do to them. And that backfires. You remember the organizing verse of the whole book, Acts 1.8, where the risen Christ tells the apostles outright, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and where else? Where next? And in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The persecution here, the scattering that is intended to stifle and smother the movement actually facilitates phase two of the risen Christ's agenda. The Christians in chapter 8, verse 2, get scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria according to plan. But they don't dissolve they preach and they multiply. For Luke, everything is going exactly according to plan. And remember, these scattered Christians are not the apostles. They're not Peter, James, and John. They're not the professionals. They're the regular, normal, amateur, average, workaday men and women who formed the original congregation in Jerusalem. 
They're the people in the pews, not the people in the pulpits. They're the ones scattering the word. Philip goes down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now, Samaria, of course, was not south of Jerusalem. It was north of Jerusalem. Philip goes down not in direction but in elevation. Jerusalem was on a mountain, so he goes down in elevation but up on the map. Samaria was named for a Canaanite guy named Shemer. Not real creative, but there you have it. Back in the day, according to 1 Kings 16.24, Omri, one of Israel's most wicked kings in the northern kingdom, bought the hill of Samaria from Shemer, and he fortified the city there as a military base for Israel's northern kingdom after the divided monarchy. But when Assyria took the northern kingdom into exile because of its sin in 722 B.C., the Assyrian powers left a few of the poorest Israelites to work the land of Samaria, and they resettled the rest of it with a bunch of foreigners, non-Jews. Well, the leftover Israelites married and had families with those resettled foreigners during the exile. And those ethnically mixed families were then called... Samaritans. Jews in Judea looked down on Samaritans as half-breeds both ethnically and religiously. And many Judeans viewed those Samaritans as outright apostate Jews. Traitors. You guys intermarried with non-Jews and had families with them? How could you? How can you be a good Jew and do that? That's exactly what God told us not to do under the Old Covenant. And they eventually built their own temple on a different mountain, and in part to justify doing that, they held only to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, and they rejected the rest of the Old Testament because, of course, the rest of the Old Testament is the story of how the temple got built in Jerusalem. And that's why it was a big deal for Jesus himself to ask a Samaritan woman for a drink of water in John 4, and that's why it's a big deal now for Philip to preach the gospel here in Samaria, of all places. The gospel is breaking down cultural, social, ethnic boundaries as the direct result of persecution, no less. In verse 6, the crowds pay attention as if with a single mind to Philip's words as he's preaching the Christ. That in itself is a miracle, considering the hostility between Jews and Samaritans. But it's also a miracle because the word for paying attention there is the same one Luke uses for how Lydia listened to Paul in Acts 16. And there it says, the Lord is the one who opened her heart in order to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So here, Luke probably has that same idea in mind. The Lord is opening 
the hearts of the Samaritans to listen to what Philip, a Jew, is saying about Jesus as the Christ. The object of Philip's message is that Jesus is the Christ. That's what he's preaching, according to Luke. He's the prophet promised by Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15, but is greater because Jesus doesn't only convey God's word, God's word, he embodies God's message to humanity. Jesus is the priest like Aaron who is representing God to the people and the people to God, but he's greater than Aaron because he's not only the priest but also the sacrifice who sheds his own blood for the remission of our sins and he is the king who rules over God's royal priesthood and holy nation. This is the message Philip would have announced, heralded, broadcast, published, especially to people who only believed in the first five books of the Bible. Luke portrays Philip then as doing just what the apostles and even Jesus did before him. He's preaching, casting out demons, and healing paralytics to prove the truth of God's word about Jesus on this gospel frontier. The great persecution of verse 1, the great sorrow of verse 2, the lamentation over Stephen's death leads two great signs in verse 7, and the result in verse 8 is much joy in a Samaritan city over the gospel. So just get this straight. Jerusalem's sorrow over Stephen in verses 1 to 2 leads to Samaria's joy in Jesus in verses 7 and 8. And therefore, what was said of Jesus in John 12, 24 could also have been said of Stephen. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Stephen's death leads to the spread of the gospel and the growing life of the church outside Jerusalem's walls among people who used to be hostile to all Jews and to whom all Jews used to be hostile. But it took the personal evangelism of persecuted Christians to make that happen. Now what is the point of all this? The point for us today is that Christianity spreads when persecuted Christians do personal evangelism. Christianity spreads when persecuted Christians do personal evangelism. These are normal Christians. They're not vocational Christians who make their living by preaching the gospel. All the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. These 
are members of the church in Jerusalem. They're displaced refugees. They've been unfairly treated. They've been misunderstood. They've been wrongly evicted from their homes and house churches, from their town. Some have been wrongly imprisoned, but they don't wilt under the heat of persecution. They weather it because they are rooted and grounded in the apostolic gospel of Jesus Christ. So they persevere. They take a licking and they keep on ticking. House or no house, job or no job, citizen or refugee, success story or apparent failure, gathered or scattered, at home or in a foreign context. They overcome whatever temptation they may have had to pity themselves. They overcome fear of man, fear of the unknown, fear of the foreign, they love Jesus so much that he is what they want to talk about with everyone. Not themselves, not their own troubles or sorrows, not how they have been unfairly treated, not the people who unfairly treated them, not their hobbies or their vocations that they hope to continue in a different place. They went around evangeling the evangel. Now, this should make a difference to you and me today. Reading that ought to make a, make a difference to us. It ought to make a difference, first, in our expectations of the Christian life. The global spread of the gospel is cruciform. It's cross-shaped. And anybody who tells you different is selling you something. The global spread of the gospel is cross-shaped. We are following and proclaiming a crucified and risen Christ, so it should not surprise us when the spread of that message costs us something, maybe everything. Persecution of the church will be more or less normal all the way through the period between Jesus' ascension and his return. Here, Paul is dragging off men and women and putting them into prison. That word only occurs five times in the whole New Testament. Two of the other times it's used, dragging away, it's in Acts. And one of those other times is of Satan's persecution of the church and her leaders in Revelation 12, 4. The dragon's tail swept down, dragged down, dragged off, dragged away a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Those stars are the church's leaders. The woman clothed with the sun and the moon and a crown of 12 stars is the church there. Saul is acting here in Acts 8 like a satanic antichrist figure. But soon, Paul himself will be the one dragged away. Acts 14, 19, Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him, same word, out of the city. Now he gets a little taste of his own medicine. 
supposing that he was dead. Paul reprises there the suffering of Stephen and the church here in Acts 8. This is often what happens to Christians in the world throughout history. That's the point of Revelation 12. This is what's going to happen regularly to churches. Satan's going to sweep away their stars. Here in Acts 8, Saul is handing these Christians over to the prisons. And ironically, prison is where Paul will spend his own final days. And yet by then, he will have learned the lesson that these Christians are illustrating for him now in Acts 8. Christians might be imprisoned and bound with chains as criminals, but what does Paul say from prison? But the Word of God is not bound. You can put me in the stocks. You can put me in prison. Lock it up. Lock me up. I don't care. The Word of God is not bound. He doesn't realize that yet. But by the end of his life, he's going to know it. And he's going to preach it. So this text should change our expectations, inform our expectations about what the Christian life and ministry is going to be like. It's not all roses. It's not all, oh, I had much influence and I became popular. No, not necessarily. You've got to get used to that if you're going to be a real Christian. There's also correction here for us. And I've got to warn you, this is going to hurt. This is going to hurt, because it hurts me. <laughs> Self-pity is not an excuse to avoid evangelism. Look at this. These people were run out of town, literally. They were kicked out of their homes. The community leaders shut down their home Bible studies and prayer groups. And still, you could not shut these people up from talking about Jesus and the gospel of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Wherever they go and whatever they undergo, still... They gossip the gospel. There is not a hint of self-pity in this account. Nobody goes into the fetal position feeling sorry for themselves because they got run out of their town and their home for their faith in Jesus. All I was doing was leading a Bible study in my home and look what they did. None of that. They just look for another microphone to get the gospel of Jesus out on the airwaves somewhere else. No look in their wounds. No, I think I need a couple of months to process what just happened to me. None of these Christians need to process anything. And look what happened to them. There's no talk of, I'm really not ready to do evangelism yet. 
I don't think I'm healthy enough to do evangelism because I'm still hurting too much from what I lost in order to help anybody else. That is not how this reads. Is it? Nothing of, hey man, I have a family to think about. I don't want to end up like Stephen. And my friends just got kicked out of their house and his wife was hauled off to prison. I mean, what kind of husband would I... You don't hear any of that. Their love for Jesus and joy in Jesus was absolutely irrepressible no matter what they had to sacrifice. They could not and would not stop talking about Jesus. Gospel, gossip just kept flying out of their mouths. Even though they had lost everything for it. How in the world do you become that kind of Christian? What motivates you? I think it's love for Jesus. Love for Jesus motivates happy sacrifice for Him. You sacrifice for what you love. Do you not? You reorganize your life around what you love. Friend, what does it mean for you to love Jesus? Because this is what it meant for them. You could kick them out of their houses, kick them out of town because of their faith in Jesus, and they still would not stop speaking favorably about Jesus to others. They could not say enough about Jesus, even when he was the reason they lost the house and lost the job and got run out of town. Now, how do you come to love Jesus like that? I mean, if love for Jesus is what makes you this kind of Christian who will sacrifice all these kind of things for that love for him, then how do you begin loving Jesus like that? Well, that only happens when people realize how sinful they really are and how damnable they are in their own sin, how righteous God would be to damn them to hell for all eternity for their sin. And how thoroughly Jesus saved them from the enslaving power and eternal penalty of their sins. You, you don't do this. You don't live like this if what you think of Christianity is, well, it gives me another base from which to sell the product that I sell at work. You don't become this kind of Christian because you think, well, Christianity is respectable and, and it's nice and a lot of people 
like Christians and I want to be a nice person and I want to be respectable, so I'm going to be a Christian too. That ain't going to last this. That won't endure this. Mm -mm. You have to love Jesus for who he is in all of his beauty and majesty and glory and excellence and mercy and compassion. You have to love him for who he is even if he never did a thing for you. And then add on to that loving him for what he did for you. And realizing how much you needed him to do that for you. Not just, oh, Jesus is really lucky to have me on his team because I'm a CEO, or I'm the head of the PTA, or I'm the head of the community organization, or I'm this or that or the other. You're not this or that or the other to Jesus. He is everything to you. Only if you understand the depth and breadth of the gospel message and the person of Jesus and his work and the depth and breadth of your need for him, only then, only then do you think, man, this house is nothing compared to what Jesus sacrificed for me. Getting kicked out of Jerusalem is nothing compared, for, compared with Jesus voluntarily coming down from heaven to earth to save my sinful soul. My literally damned sinful soul. So really it comes down to what, what is Christianity to you? What does it mean for you to believe in Jesus, to love him? Who do you think he is? What do you think he's done? Why do you think you need that? How bad do you think you need it? Or is it just another kind of accessory, an add-on? Do you treat your Christianity like a nice gold cross? It's just an accessory. It makes you look pretty. It makes you look cool. What is your Christianity? That will tell you whether you're going to do this for Jesus or not. Love. Love motivates sacrifice. Love refuses self-pity. Love produces gospel grit and gospel gossip. You love Jesus enough You'll stick it out through anything for him. You love Jesus enough, you won't be able to stop talking about him, even though other people are slandering you. Now I'm going to say the quiet part out loud here. These Christians make us look soft. Kind of like a defensive line that can't stop the run. Or an offensive line that can't protect its quarterback. We're afraid of being laughed at or left out. But kicked out? I mean, that's not even on our radar. 
that's not even really an option. But this in Acts 8, this is gospel grit. This is being thick-skinned against persecution, tender-hearted towards sinners of other cultures and colors, even when you're the one who just came into their culture against your will. This isn't study abroad. This isn't, hey, I'd like to spend a summer in Samaria. That's not this. This is, they kicked me out of my house and they said I couldn't live here anymore. They got a restraining order against me. And then, sticking your neck out for the cause of Christ with people who you know hate you for your ethnicity and religion and for how they think you hate them. So just to put a little finer point on it, it's getting kicked out of Hoffman Estates and involuntarily relocated to Englewood. And still, being an evangelist with a good attitude when you know how they look at you in Englewood for being from Hoffman Estates. Because Jesus is your first and most obvious loyalty and priority, even when your life in this world gets turned upside down. And this is gospel self-forgetfulness. They forget what they have forfeited for Jesus. House, neighborhood, farm, family business, friends, church, job, proximity to family, whatever they just gave up. They forget about it. They don't go around talking about that. They chalk it all up to providence and they remember Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Man, you try to give some Christians this kind of counsel today, and they look at you like you should be in a room with padded walls. Are you nuts? But Christians grow in gospel determination to outrejoice and out-evangelize the world's opposition to the church. Christians have a gospel tenacity against the self-pitying impulses of the flesh. Look, I'm preaching to myself just as much as I'm preaching to you. I just want you to know. Love for Jesus, though, produces gospel grit and gospel gossip rooted in God's sovereignty over the who, when, and how of gospel progress. And this is an encouragement to us. God, God controls the who, when, and how of gospel progress in the world. God uses persecution 
not just ease or even apostolic initiative in order to spread his gospel. God uses Philip the deacon, not Peter the apostle, to initiate the next stage of God's global gospel program. God sends the gospel first to hated and hateful Samaria, not to a neutral site as he opens their hearts by his sovereign power to pay rapt attention to the gospel words Philip preached. God is in control of this thing. So what's the worst that can happen? You suffer, you die, you leave behind a wife and kids who watched you die for the cause of Christ and truth and righteousness? I mean, I thought you wanted to leave a legacy. But maybe you just meant a trust fund. Christians who pray about God's Sovereignty over the cross, like they prayed in Acts 4, 27 and 28. Those are the kind of Christians who do evangelism even after they lose their jobs for the cross of Christ. Acts 4, truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and all the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. You pray like that? about the evil that happened at the cross of Christ, then, then, you can trust the same sovereign God to use the evil that you endure for gospel good. And you begin to expect it. And that leads us to an encouraging reminder. God intends for good what our persecutors intend for evil. What we're seeing here in an, is a New Testament instance of Genesis 50, verse 20, where Joseph said to his brothers, you meant it for evil. You meant selling me into slavery. You meant that for evil against me because you hated me for my dreams about you guys bowing down to me. But God meant it for good. So it is here. The opponents of the gospel meant this scattering to stifle the gospel and weaken the church. God meant that same scattering for the spread of the gospel and for the strengthening of the church. God uses this persecution to scatter his people so that they will spread his gospel, which will only strengthen and multiply the church. Persecution becomes a force multiplier in God's hands precisely because it sends his people to speak his gospel in other places. And when Christians are self-aware about that, things start happening. Therefore, persecution 
need not and should not discourage us. Not only should it not surprise us, it should not discourage us in the least. Jesus said in Mark 4.17, Some people hear the gospel, but it falls on rocky soil in their hearts. It has no depth or no root. They receive the gospel with joy at first, but when the heat of persecution arises, the gospel seed withers, they fade away. Jesus tells us ahead of time, look, it's going to get difficult. This is part of it. But he says in Mark 10, 29, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, which is just what's happening here in Acts 8, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions, hmm? and in the age to come eternal life. Look, man, your Christianity is going to be a mixed bag at best in terms of its results in this life, okay? Many of you have multiplied your church family in this local church, and you feel closer to this local church family than you do to your biological family. Praise God. And you've got persecutions to go with that, don't you? So Christian, do you believe these things? These Christians in Acts 8 believed all of it. And that's why they acted like this. Saul is the one causing the persecution now, but soon he will be the one suffering it himself, as the Apostle Paul. Acts 13.50, the Jews stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. Again, a little taste of his own medicine. And drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Gospel grit, gospel gossip. Take a look at it and keep on ticking. And that experience moves Paul to say in Romans 8.35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution? Persecution going to separate you from Jesus' love? No. In all these things. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul, in fact, became content with persecution, 2 Corinthians 12.10, because he said, when I am weak in myself, then I am strong in Christ. He told the Thessalonians that he bragged on them to other churches. In 2 Thessalonians 1.4, for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions. You didn't wilt and wither, you weathered it because you love Jesus. And he commended Timothy because you have followed not only my teaching, conduct, aim in life, faith, patience, love, and steadfastness, but also my persecutions. You followed me in those two. Well done. Well done. Recognize, he's not saying to Timothy, hey, what are you doing wrong that you're suffering so much, man? I thought you were a Christian. Why are you suffering so much? No, he says, you followed me in my persecutions for my Christianity. Well done, son, well done. Persecution does not frustrate the gospel. It facilitates the spread of the gospel. That has been true ever since Jesus Christ suffered on the cross himself. We should believe it. 
This text also gives us perhaps a new or renewed perspective on our responsibility as Christians. Personal evangelism is a privilege, priority, and responsibility for every Christian. For every Christian. This is not a one-off evangelistic outreach in Acts 8. They keep doing evangelism later in Acts 11:19. Those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, these same people here in Acts 8, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But he, there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. Again, this is not apostolic evangelism. This is not Peter, James, and John doing all the work. It is congregational evangelism. It is the church scattered doing it, speaking it. It's normal Christians fulfilling the Great Commission from Matthew 28. This is what it looked like for Ephesians 4, 12 to 16 to be applied. The risen Christ gives gifts to his church. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. The apostles and shepherds had equipped these Christians to speak the gospel to unbelievers, to build themselves up in their most holy faith, to understand how to persevere when they suffer and are persecuted for their faith in Christ. And now it was time to do it. To put their money where their mouth was. So they did it. They did not wait for the apostles to come to their own towns or give them permission. The Christians got to it themselves. They knew what to do when the apostles weren't around. And the apostles had to catch up with them as they were doing it. You see this? These Christians anticipate Colossians 4, 5 through 6. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. It anticipates 1 Thessalonians 1, 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. Christians treated evangelism as a privilege. It was a privilege to speak the gospel to others and to invite them to respond with repentance and faith. And it was a priority even after they had lost everything. These Christians made a point of speaking the gospel everywhere they went. Their priority was not simply getting another job, finding another place to live, and hunkering down till the culture war passed, hoping that one day Christianity might become popular and easy in Samaria, and that they might have a Christian governor that would legalize their religion. They don't wait for that. They didn't get mealy-mouthed or timid. They didn't shrink back from the gospel just because they got kicked out of town. They prioritized it. But it wasn't unnatural either. They just did it. This is just what Christians do because that's who Christians are. Christians are people whose greatest priority is Christ and the gospel. Christians are people whose greatest priority is Christ and the gospel. Not hearth and home.
So if that's not true of you, you might not be a bad Christian. You might actually be a non-Christian. This is New Testament Christianity. These people viewed this as their responsibility. Again, who is going to spread the gospel throughout Judea and Samaria if not these normal workaday Christians who had just been displaced from their whole lives? Because it wasn't going to be the apostles. The apostles had to anchor and shepherd what remained of the church in Jerusalem that just lost so many members. Now, we can't know the exact numbers, but this is the kind of coordinated persecution that leaves behind a lot of empty pews. It's the kind of thing that takes you from 5,000 members to 500 members in maybe a month or two. Your home Bible study just lost its house and its members and its host. So here again, we see that even the apostolic leaders could not do all the serving or even all the evangelism themselves. The church did not spread and grow throughout Judea and Samaria just because of the apostles' preaching or even because of their miracles. From now on, the apostles are playing catch-up to the congregation's evangelism. The congregation is spreading the gospel as they spread out from their persecution, and when converts are made, the Christians notify the apostles back at the Jerusalem Mother Church, and the apostles go to confirm those converts by the laying on of apostolic hands and the giving of the Spirit to the first converts on the gospel frontiers. Hey, guys! You're not going to believe this, but Samaria is accepting the gospel. And Peter and John are like, really? Okay, well, we'll come check it out. They go check it out, and sure enough, Samaria is receiving the gospel, so they receive the Spirit. Who's leading that evangelism? It ain't the apostles. They're following. It's the congregation who's leading it. And they're like, well, what do we do now because Samaria is accepting the gospel? And the apostles are like, well, I guess they've got to have the Spirit. <laughs> so we're going to come and lay hands on them, and they're going to receive the Spirit, and our laying on of apostolic hands is going to show everybody Samaritans and Jews are now one in Christ because we all got the same Spirit. So congregation, you have a job to do in this church. You have initiative to take. Don't wait for me, don't wait for the other elders to tell you, go do evangelism. Just go do evangelism. Don't wait for us to make a program for you. You have relationships that we don't have. Start with those. We have you have relationships that we can't fabricate for you. You already have them. Go use them for the gospel. The elder's job is to equip you for ministry through the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. Your job is to use that equipping ministry to go do evangelism and make disciples with people that we don't know, but that you already have influence with. 
you're the Christian, maybe the only Christian, in someone else's life, at your job, in your neighborhood, at your gym. So when's the last time you started a gospel conversation with one of those people in your neighborhood or at work or at the club? You have influence with people at work, at home, in the neighborhood. It's inescapable. What are you doing with it? Use it to make disciples and to invite them to attend this church to get equipped themselves to make other disciples. That's the deal. That's the program. You're already in it. <laughs> and if it wasn't too complicated for Jews in Samaria, then it's not too complicated for us in Elgin and Chicagoland. This is how it works. And Christian preaching and evangelism preaches Christ. Very simple. Luke says in verse 4, they went about preaching the word, spreading the good news message about Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. In verse 5, Philip proclaimed Jesus as the Christ. Guys, this is not rocket science. Just talk to people about Jesus. That's evangelism. If you have been a member of this church for even just a few months, I can all but guarantee you that you know far more about Jesus in the Bible than anybody else at your workplace or at your gym. You're the expert, not them. You're better taught in the Bible than any non-Christian you're regularly around simply because you're under the regular expositional ministry of God's Word. The gospel of Jesus is in your heart already. Unleash it. Talk about it. Let it out of you. In initiate gospel conversations with people. Begin evangelistic friendships with unbelievers. Be the forthright Christian in their lives that befriends and loves them even if they don't yet want to become a Christian. Pray for them. Act like a Christian to them. Befriend them. Act and talk like you want them to become a Christian. And stay their friend even if they don't. I want to mention just a few tools for you to use when you do that. Christianity Explained. Christianity Explained by Michael Bennett is a six-week study of the Gospel of Mark designed to introduce people to the person and work of Jesus and to call them to faith and repentance. It's really faithful, really clear, really easy. Use it. There's a couple of you using it already. A couple of you are thinking about using it. Use it. You can get it at ChristianityExplained.com. You don't even have to leave the comfort of your own home. ChristianityExplained.com You can always also use Two Ways to Live, which is an evangelistic tract published by Matthias Media. You can use it as a Bible study or as a one-off conversation starter. Two Ways to Live. We've trained you in that in the adult ed class. What is the Gospel? is both a tract and also a short book put out by Crossway Publishing, written by Greg Gilbert. What is the Gospel? Write with God is a short evangelistic book by John Blanchard, Write with God, published by Banner of Truth. When I say short, it's really short. It's really short. But it's a great little book to use with someone who wants to consider the claims of Christ. The Plight of Man and the Power of God by D. Martin Lloyd-Jones is a great little book explaining the dynamics of Romans 1 to unbelievers. Use that. And look, all these little resources, all you have to do is say, look, I got this book. I'd be happy to read it through with you over lunch sometime or just over the next couple weeks. We don't even have to finish it. But 
let's just see if we can get through one chapter of this little book every week together, and we'll get together over coffee, and we'll just talk about it. How about that? You don't have to become a Christian, but would you just read this little book with me a chapter at a time? And, I, and you can pepper me with questions or whatever you want, but let's just talk about it. Those kind of resources give you common conversation material as starter fodder, and I will guarantee you it will be invigorating to you to think together about the gospel with an unbeliever, and you will be surprised at how encouraging it is to your own heart to think and pray, even with, a, even with somebody who doesn't end up becoming a Christian. That might disappoint you, but it's going to strengthen your faith. I guarantee it. So pray and go use these resources. And then Just for Starters, published by Matthias Media, is a follow-up tool to disciple people who have just expressed faith in Jesus. Use that. And maybe God will open their hearts to pay attention to what you're saying to them. He did that for Philip with the Samaritans. He did it for Paul with Lydia. Why would he not do that for you? Christianity spreads when persecuted Christians do personal evangelism. Self-pity is not an option. And God's sovereignty is not a reason for neglect, but a reason to be faithful and hopeful. Love for Jesus motivates evangelism, even in the midst of persecution. God will bring good out of the persecution that the world means for evil. He will do it. Persecution for the gospel cannot and will not separate you from the Christ of the gospel. So don't fear it and don't let it discourage you. Show some gospel grit. Engage in gospel gossip. Personal evangelism is a privilege, priority, and responsibility for every Christian. So Christian, what are you going to do about that? Let's pray again. Father, we thank you for the good example of these persecuted Christians in Acts 8. It's convicting to us. But we know we need to see it and emulate it. We confess we have not had to sacrifice much at all in this land for our faith in Christ. So we pray that you would make us bold, that we would seize this time. to be bold for the gospel, that you would embolden us as a whole congregation in our work lives, in our discretionary time, in our neighborhoods and clubs and other associations where we know non-Christians, that we would initiate and maintain gospel conversations and friendships, evangelistic conversations and friendships with them, that we would not be timid to be known as the Christian that other people know who are non-Christians. That we would seek to be known as that to them. That we would show loyalty and love to Jesus. That would inflame our hearts with love to Jesus. That would motivate our evangelism and remind us afresh of how greatly we have needed Jesus and all that he is and has done for us. That we might love him more that our more ardent love would produce more ardent loyalty 
for Jesus' sake. Amen.